I'm Tom Fraser, and this is the second segment of my interview with Andy Brown, the executive director of Kadori Farm and Botanic Garden in Hong Kong. Tell us about the programming activities at Kadori Farm. People will often say that we are several NGOs all wrapped into one. So we, we have nature conservation, nature education, and we, we talk about that as holistic education and sustainable living as our main program goals. Uh, the largest of those goals, I would think, is nature conservation, and that that uh, encompasses three departments. We have a uh, fauna conservation department, that's animals, a flora conservation department, that's plants, trees, and We have our China program, we call that Kaduri Conservation China. We have a separate entity in China. And uh, so in those those teams, we we have uh, really highly skilled scientists. Some of them are the leaders in their field in the world. And um, the, the forest restoration and orchid conservation programs are our flagship programs in, in flora conservation and uh, we've we've been studying and um, conserving orchids in Hong Kong and in mainland China in in nature reserves for many years now we have real strength in that area um, we choose orchids because they are a flagship species in that if you have a healthy orchid population in a forest, then that will indicate to you then that you have a healthy forest. So if you have no orchids, then you'll know that there's been a lot of poaching and uh, there's, a, there's an imbalance in, in, the, in the, the network of, of ecology in, in that area. Orchids also are highly threatened because of the uh, the poaching for the sale of orchids into um, flower markets, etc., but also into the uh, Chinese medicinal program, so making making medicines. So there's a huge pressure, and so we put a lot of a lot of work into that, and uh, we have. We have several PhD scientists working in the in the area of orchids, and uh, Hong Kong itself is very rich in orchids. There's 135 or so orchid species that are known in in Hong Kong, which is more than in all of Europe, for example. We've done a lot of work in forest restoration and we started by looking at how we can restore our own forest and we had uh, a lot of failure in that area for many years in that we would find these rare species, uh, take the seeds you know, in far-flung corners of Hong Kong, develop the seeds into little seedlings and plant them out, often high up on our hillside and find then that they 
didn't survive and uh, um, they died or they were they were stunted they didn't grow at all and this went on for many years it's partly because the soil was degraded after centuries of uh, um, deforestation and partly because cold winters and very hot summers but then um we had a new head of department, Dr. Gunther Fischer. He came in with great ideas and uh, he developed a system, a methodology for restoring very degraded hillsides and uh, set up uh, experiments in a very rigorous scientific way uh, using many different species and different, different uh, applications uh, sometimes adding fertilizer, sometimes no fertilizer, sometimes tree guards that create a little microclimate around the seedling, uh, sometimes cutting the, the grass around the seedling that was competing with the seedlings, sometimes not, sometimes putting down mats. So very technical. Uh, sometimes adding biochar, which is a uh, rather magical uh, substance that we that we make from heating wood from the trees that we need to cut for safety reasons. We heat that at 500 degrees C and it creates this, this very special charcoal which can become a haven for microorganisms which then enriches the soil. So we would sometimes add biochar, sometimes not. And over the course of several years on multiple plots, uh, he developed the answers to basically what works and what does not work. And uh, we have uh, developed that, written it up, and uh, that methodology is currently being assessed to become the global standard for forest restoration. Yeah, that's being assessed by our friends in... Uh, BGCI, that's Botanic Gardens Conservation International, who is, is the network of uh, Botanic Gardens. Um, and just uh, a year or so ago, our team were uh, in Africa teaching botanists and government representatives from five African countries this methodology now of course there'd be different species in africa but the methodology mm. of how you find the uh, the correct the correct way to restore forests that you know that was that was taught and that can be applied and of course yeah, that's, that's very is very important for climate change yeah. and uh, at the moment there are there are major commitments around the world to um, grow forests, but unfortunately, uh, many governments are are growing fast growing uh, non native forests, like fast growing eucalyptus trees is a is a common thing, and they're even planning that those trees will be cut down for 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 wood use in the future. Well, that's not going to do anything for climate change. So what we need for climate change is, is the right methodology that would enable an, a native forest, diverse native species to 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 grow in a, in a, in a, in a place 
and remain there for hundreds of years. That's very important. And uh, uh, this methodology is so important in helping people to quickly establish those forests. The Sustainable Living Programme revolves around food, uh, food being an entry point to uh, living sustainably, living in harmony on this planet. Uh, food does consume, food production does consume a lot of uh, carbon in the form of transportation, in the form of fertilisers. Most fertilisers are oil-based in the uh, non-organic food production. So, so we teach people organic farming or sustainable farming. We encourage people to uh, eat locally produced food, to produce some of their own food, uh, to eat less meat. We don't preach and we don't try and scare people with, uh, with terrible stories about future effects of climate change. We try to engage people in positive programs. I've talked about the Wild Animal Rescue Centre. That's part of our, our nature conservation program in the, the fauna area. So we're approaching our 50,000th animal that we will have received, wild animal. Within the next uh, month or two, we'll, we'll reach 50,000 since we started in 1994. So uh, the, we receive many, many birds, migratory birds. They often fly into buildings particularly these large skyscrapers in the urban area. Um, we receive many thousands of turtles that are coming through Hong Kong on ships and in people's luggage illegally. Uh, they, they're coming in for the pet trade or for the medicinal uh, trade. Um, Hong Kong, unfortunately, is a hub for illegal trade. We do work in partnership with the government in trying to stop that. We have a number of programs in that area. We also have a breeding program for the golden coin turtle, which is uh, a native turtle. And unfortunately for that turtle, it has a little golden spot, like a gold coin, on the top of its head. And... Uh, so originally people thought that if they owned that turtle, it would bring them wealth. And then uh, another myth started that that turtle would cure cancer if you, ate, if you ate the body parts of that turtle, it would cure cancer. Uh, now that's, that's not true, it doesn't cure cancer, uh, but unfortunately that led to widespread poaching in the wild. So uh, we've had a uh, breeding program here for many years and we, we breed the, uh, the little turtles and hopefully one day they'll be able to be released 
back to the wild, but that day hasn't come yet because we know that if we put them back into the streams, then the poachers will come and take them again, you know. Uh, but we, we keep plugging away. We actually do have partnerships around the world, uh, in the US and in, and in Europe, uh, with other centers that breed those turtles. And we have to work very hard to ensure that we have um, a good diversity, a genetic diversity, within those within within that population so we're happy to exchange uh individuals between programs around the world so that we can strengthen the diversity um we actually do have a genetic laboratory on site here and that's very very useful in determining uh the origins of plants and animals that that come to us um, we've done a major program with uh, a U.S. university, uh, Stony Brook University in New York, where we've we've uh, analysed the shark fins that are coming through Hong Kong. So again, Hong Kong is a major route for shark's fins into mainland China, and uh, we started to do DNA testing on bags of. Uh, offcuts of shark fins that we could buy easily in the markets. And uh, we found that um, even in one small bag of offcuts, you could have 50 different species, of which one third were protected species. And uh, that led us to then find a partnership with uh, experts in the US and uh, they sent over their PhD students, and then for several years we we uh, analysed hundreds and hundreds of these of these sample bags, and that led to important publications and important um, world attention to the sharks uh, the sharks fin problems. And uh, our partners have also developed now a device that um, we can use to analyze the DNA of sharks that are found in containers coming into the port in Hong Kong. And uh, we, can, we can take a sample of the uh, shark's fin from the, from the uh, container, put it into the machine, and within an hour or so, we can know what species that is. Whereas in the old days, it used to be several weeks before you you could know and then of course the owners of those sharks fins would would uh, not really allow the authorities to hold their stock for so long now now we can do that in fact we can also test the dust that sits at the bottom of a container uh, and that is like if you like shark dust and we can we can put that in, and it, it will separate the machine will separate uh, every species of of uh, shark uh, that's in that's in that dust, therefore that is in that container, and that can lead to prosecutions and can lead to uh, at least uh, some effect on the illegal trade. We also have a lot of work going on in mainland China in the nature conservation 
area. We've been working in mainland China uh, full-time since 1998. And one of the first things we did in those early years was to survey forests, survey green patches on the map. And we literally had no connections in the early days. And our team looked at maps and they looked for green areas and then they would go to those green areas and try to find someone that looked as though they were in charge of that green area and they would say hello we're from Hong Kong we'd like to help you we'd like to survey your forest and sometimes they found unfriendly people sometimes they found very friendly people government officials local government and when they found friendly people then we would do these surveys and those reports then went to Beijing and uh, in some cases they led to the formation of nature reserves and what was originally unprotected land. Uh, in other cases they were nature reserves originally but just local reserves and they gradually would become upgraded to provincial and then national nature reserves. And with that comes more funding from the central government and uh, professional management. So we actually surveyed around 50 natural areas in those early years across southern China. Um, that There are patches of very good forest uh elsewhere in China, but it's mainly across that southern band, that, that subtropical band. And so we, we really concentrated our time and effort there. Uh, we only had a small team, and it's a, it's a black hole. You know, there's so much can be done that we had to focus on, on where we uh, were able to have influence. And uh, so now we have programs in partnership with the central government, and and the local governments in Hainan and Yunnan and uh, Guangxi. These are the main. These are the main places. Um, our main, or let's say, our most famous work is in Hainan, where we've been working for many years. And uh, the key species that we've been working with there is the Hainan gibbon. That is the rarest primate in the world there are no Hainan gibbons in captivity they're thought to uh, die in captivity and uh, when we started with our first surveys in 2003 uh, we found 13 individuals so that if you like the last 13 of that species in the in and they're in the wild now there's 30 around 30 it's hard to be 100% sure so that's good and uh, so our work to help that species to move from 13 to 30 has been about planting uh, hundreds of thousands of trees that produce the fruit that they need uh, to um, encourage um, protection so that's meant hiring wardens, uh, often hiring people that used to be poachers 
who know the forest really well and uh, turning them into wardens and they get a uniform and a salary and prestige instead of skulking around in the middle of the night as a poacher. So that's been very successful. We have 24 hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year monitoring of, of the gibbons, which we pay for. Um, and then we, we do uh, regular surveys where we'll uh, link up with the wardens in the nature reserve and the nature reserve management and maybe some scientists from uh, universities and we'll, and we'll survey the whole area and we'll try and do it all at the same time. You know, we'll survey the, the, the huge park that are in, the huge nature reserve that they're in and that will tell us you know the accurate numbers and we can uh, we can have a good idea whether our protection methods are are working but we also work with other animal groups we work with hornbills and uh, otters is a new is a new area for us just this week uh, we've been having the uh, uh, otter conference a global otter conference that we've organized in uh, Chengdu, in in the, the province of Sichuan, putting together scientists from all over the world. In fact, we'll often do that. We'll we'll have orchid conferences and uh, um, all sorts of other conferences, pulling people together, uh, which is very important for sharing knowledge and working out action plans with the top people. Andy, just one last question. I've spent a lot of time walking around the urban and rural parts of Hong Kong this past week. My sense is that an appreciation of nature is a, a really important part of many people's lives in Hong Kong. The many small parks scattered throughout the residential parts of Hong Kong are always filled with people in the morning stretching, exercising, doing Tai Chi, playing badminton. Hiking is a big weekend avocation for many people. There are literally dozens of scenic hikes in Hong Kong. Uh, how does an appreciation of nature fit into the culture of Hong Kong? Yes, I agree with you. I, I believe that the love of nature was not so strong just a few years ago. Uh, people are often consumed with having to work very hard to pay, to pay uh, high rents, it's a very expensive place to live, and so there's a lot of stress for people. Um, but we've noticed a lot more people out in the nature reserves. A lot more people come to Kuduri Farm, and people really show a lot of interest. We have a very busy Facebook page. We have people calling us up asking for advice on plants. We have people actually picking up injured animals, particularly injured birds that they come across or baby birds that have fallen out of nests and they really care and, and we've seen a huge growth in, in people's general interest and general participation and of course spending time in nature is a great stress reliever and uh, people need that if, if they're just in the urban area the whole time seven days a week, year in, year out, 
then that is really not healthy for people. And this is an amazing city that within half an hour of leaving Central, you can be on a mountain top, you can be on a beach, um, you can be on a lowland uh, farming area. Quite amazing, really. You can be on a little island. So people do appreciate that, and uh, in in growing numbers, people are enjoying nature in Hong Kong. Andy, the story of Kadori Farm and Botanic Garden is a fascinating one. I appreciate the important work you and your colleagues are doing. Uh, Thank you for talking with me and my listeners. Uh, We really appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about how people in different parts of the world are building nonprofit cultural and service organizations and how they are finding success building businesses and organizations that will have an important and lasting legacy, let me suggest you visit my website, www.tlfraser.com. All of my podcasts and a selection of my newsletters are posted there. Thank you.